from KQED. Near the end of Jerry Brown's first term as governor, his political advisor, Tom Quinn, took a trip to downtown Los Angeles. And it wasn't what you'd call a glamorous mission. In fact, the way Quinn remembers it, he was going to L.A. for a sort of public shaming. An L.A. County supervisor wanted to confront him over some environmental policy that the Brown administration was pushing. We were requiring some retrofits of old cars, and he wanted me to see how awful this was. The, the poor people just couldn't afford it. But when Quinn got to the county building, no one was talking about car parts. There were hundreds and hundreds of people there protesting property taxes. It was 1977, and Tom Quinn had stumbled onto what seemed like a kind of Boston Tea Party. We have a new revolution against the arrogant politicians and insensitive bureaucrats whose philosophy of tax, tax, tax... Super high inflation was increasing home values, and property taxes were going up and up. And that meant a lot of scared and angry seniors. So Quinn hightailed it back to Sacramento and told Governor Brown what he'd seen. And so I packed in Sacramento. I told Jerry, I said, we have to, this is, and Jerry said, I said, no, no, you don't understand. These people are scared. They think they're losing their homes. It all created a kind of perfect storm. Anti-tax crusaders Paul Gann and Howard Jarvis collected more than a million signatures to put what became Proposition 13 on the ballot in June of 1978. Up until that point, Jerry Brown had shown remarkable political vision, or what he calls the eye. How clearly do you see? How good is your eye? A good eye, seeing a problem coming around the bend and dealing with it before it blows up and becomes a crisis. Jerry Brown had that sharp eye, at least during his political rise. But starting with the tax revolt of 1978 until the end of 1982, Brown's political eye was tested like never before. And more often than not, his vision got a little blurry. From KQED Public Radio, this is the political mind of Jerry Brown. I have a political mind. How clearly do you see? How, how good is your eye? Get, get the ins out and to get the outs in. What, what wouldn't happen? But for me, but for, but for me, I reserve the right to think for myself. Right to think for myself. You're listening to The Political Mind of Jerry Brown. I'm Scott Schaefer. On the heels of his 50th anniversary of jumping into the political fray, we're bringing you the story of Jerry Brown's career, telling it through the lessons he learned along the way, lessons that might just come in handy to a few folks who are, say, heading to Iowa and New Hampshire in the coming weeks. All right, Governor, getting to the good stuff now. All right. This is uh, beginning of session four. And we're Brown's sharp political mind was on full display in the dozen or so days we spent interviewing him at his ranch in Calusa County, California. He told us how important it is for politicians to have a good eye. That means seeing a hot-button issue voters can get worked up about and jumping on it before your opponent does. Some people have a good eye. Uh, people don't. Well, that's something to be developed if you're a politician, to see what the lay of the land and, and certainly in campaigning, what works and what doesn't work. In 1978, Jerry Brown didn't see Proposition 13 coming. 
The ballot measure was a political earthquake that forever changed California's state government. And it was a debacle some felt Brown could have avoided. We did it to ourselves. Democrat Howard Berman was Assembly Majority Leader at the time. The Democrats had the ability to do something much more sensible for the fiscal future of the state than Prop 13. And we didn't see it coming, and we didn't take the reins of leadership. It was inevitable that we probably should have seen. Like Berman, Brown couldn't envision the tax revolt before it was too late. Only years later has Brown come around to what he could have done differently. The only answer to Stop 13, I've thought about this, would be to have my own counter-initiative ready early in 1977. Well, A, I didn't have the funds, and B, I wasn't geared up for initiatives like I became later in my second round as governor. Instead, Brown and fellow Democrats didn't come up with an alternative ballot measure until March, just three months before the primary. It was too little, too late. On June 6th, Proposition 13 won overwhelmingly, to the delight of its author, Howard Jarvis. We, the taxpayers, have spoken. We have made clear our goals. Now, we are watching you. It is your responsibility to make Proposition 13 work. Local property taxes were slashed, and future tax increases were capped, and they still are. Jerry Brown didn't anticipate Prop 13 soon enough to figure out a way to stop it from busting up state finances. But he did see that the measure was a political winner. I even thought about supporting Prop 13, but that was not... All my constituents were against it very strongly. Wait, what? Why would the state's top Democrat endorse something his own party saw as a disaster? Well, because it's an, it was a very popular revolt against this behemoth called government. The trouble is it seemed way overreaching. It's actually hard to overstate the extent to which Prop 13 turned Sacramento, and the rest of the state for that matter, upside down. Local governments depended heavily on property taxes, so when it passed, it was all hands on deck to fix the funding crisis. With that pressure, the political eye that temporarily failed Jerry Brown was coming back into focus. It's not the run-of-the-mill politician that can grasp the true impacts of various images and issues and, and presentations, because that takes a level of detachment and objectivity. Detachment and objectivity. In the seminary, where Brown spent three years training to become a Jesuit priest, they called that discernment. Discernment is a word that the Jesuits use a lot. And experienced judgment and knowledgeable judgment is what we'd like to have, but which because of the complexity of the world and its ever-changing nature, is hard to come by. So most people are neither skilled in their discernment nor experienced. For Brown, discernment after Prop 13 meant detaching from the emotions around the issue. Many California Democrats were just shell-shocked. They saw the tax cut as a threat to their pet programs, the ones they'd fought so hard for. But Brown's political eye saw that his political career would hang on making Prop 13 work. The message is that property tax must be sharply curtailed. Brown addressed the legislature just days after Proposition 13 passed. Government spending, wherever it is, must be held in check 
We must look forward to lean and frugal budgets. By the way, I would acknowledge that maybe I was a little too uh, exuberant in my implementation of rhetoric. Some Democrats in the legislature saw Brown's exuberant embrace of Prop 13 as outright betrayal. I never quite follow that. It's the law. Now, no one seriously said you should subvert the law. What does that mean? I mean, that's an impeachable offense. So what do they mean? Implement it, but put on sackcloth and ashes? Say, I, oh, this hurts me more than it hurts you? That's stupid. I had to do it. I did it. In late June, Brown signed a bailout bill that backfilled local governments the money that they stood to lose with lower property taxes. The war was over. We lost. It was never nice to lose. You had to move on to the next fight. And Jerry Brown would actually use Prop 13 to win the next fight, his re-election, later that year. Brown's opponent was Republican Attorney General Evel Younger. Well, here again is the great role that luck plays in life. That's Gray Davis, the future governor, who was running Brown's re-election campaign at the time. So Evel Younger decides to go to Hawaii for like two or maybe three weeks after the primary election. That's right. The election is over and the attorney general heads to Hawaii, you know, to catch some rays, sip a Mai Tai or two, downtime. The only problem was that back in Sacramento, Jerry Brown and the legislature were scrambling to implement Proposition 13. And they didn't have an AG around to ask legal advice. Gray Davis remembers Brown's re-election campaign coming up with a killer ad aimed straight at Younger being AWOL. And he says, well, Evel Younger is relaxing on the beaches of Waikiki. Governor Brown is working diligently with a legal team to support the constitutionality of Prop 13. And the election was over after that radio commercial ran. The election really was over. Brown had seen the issue of the day and pounced on it. In fact, Brown did such a good job embracing Prop 13 that Howard Jarvis, he's the guy that wrote the ballot measure, actually agreed to record an ad for Brown's re-election campaign. Wow. Some people didn't believe me when I said Proposition 13 would work. But I knew it would. And I knew Governor Brown was the man who could make it work. On election night, Brown cruised to re-election, crushing his Republican opponent by 20 percentage points. Now, at this point, he's still just 40 years old, and Brown was about to begin his second term as governor. He was America's rock star politician, flying to Africa with his girlfriend, singer Linda Ronstadt. In fact, the trip landed them on the cover of Newsweek, an iconic photo that just added to Brown's national profile. Well, probably no other elected official in America has had more written on the subject of who he is and what he believes in than Governor Jerry Brown. But as he took office for his second term, Brown would lose the eye that had launched him toward the top of the political world. He just couldn't see the kinds of issues voters cared about. And he started to lose sight of crises coming around the corner. It all started with his inaugural speech on January 8th, 1979, when Brown no longer sounded like a Democrat. False prophets have arisen to advocate more and more government spending as the cure. And what really got to liberals? Brown's solution to the growth of government. I will also support the resolution now pending before the legislature, calling upon Congress to propose a constitutional amendment 
to balance the federal budget. Or, if they are unable to do that, to convene a constitutional convention to achieve this goal. You, at this, around this time, you yeah. were getting, thinking, I assume, about running for president again. Yes, I was certainly, I've always been thinking about running for president. But to what extent were you thinking, okay, there's this new sort of tax revolt mentality, yeah. and I'm going to embrace it? And Any politician that's successful has to work with the zeitgeist of his time. Otherwise, the, you can't even be heard. Brown saw pushing for a balanced budget as the next wave of the tax revolt, like, you know, the logical sequel to Proposition 13. One political leader has seized the issue to gain national attention and as a possible launching pad for a run for the presidency in 1980. That man is the governor of California, Edmund G. Brown, Jr. The balanced budget was a simple idea, but for me it embodied the larger and fundamental concept of balance. And borrowing's fine if you have a source of repayment, but most of our borrowing is just uh, borrow, invent, and, and make the money. And so far it's worked. But we're moving in a direction where I don't think it's working. And I saw that in January of 1979, and I wanted to stop it then. And I didn't stop it then, and it's much, much worse. But Brown's emphasis on fiscal discipline didn't go over well with many of his fellow Democrats, including one prominent assemblywoman from Los Angeles. So here, here's a quote from Maxine Waters. The schizophrenic man was a Democrat today. At his inaugural address, he was a Republican. I've been terribly disappointed with the governor, and I was not about to welcome him with open arms. All right, because paying your bills with a fully earned revenue stream is unacceptable. It is completely deviant to the cultural norm of modern America. It is. I'm sorry. There is no constituency for fiscal restraint. As Brown geared up for a presidential run in early 1979, Democrats like then-Assemblyman Willie Brown couldn't wrap their heads around the balanced budget idea. Yeah, everybody believes that every budget ought to be balanced. But the question was, how do you do that with the absence of resources to do all the things that need to be done immediately. You've got to have some way and some flexibility to spend what you don't have in anticipation of being able to get it. Well, they think balance is this great act of cynicism. Survival is cynicism. we got to take care of our constituents, and we're not cynical. All we want you to do is spend and borrow and spend, and we'll worry about it. I'll be out of office. And all the people that criticize me are gone. Most of them are dead. Jerry Brown officially launched his second run for president in November of 1979, thinking he could capture the zeitgeist with a platform that was, shall we say, a little bit outside the box. Protect the earth, explore the universe, and serve the people. How did you come up with that slogan? I, how did I come up with it? I had a cup of coffee. And what does that mean, how did I come up with it? Was it your idea? How did you come up with that, I, that question? How did you come up with that question? It's part of the flow here. How can I state what, what I think is important? The balanced budget was one plank of Brown's agenda, which put him to the right of President Carter. The other plank was speaking out against nuclear power and for solar energy, protecting the Earth. And there, Brown was to the left of the president. President Carter's solar energy is a good start, but I believe we need a more rapid and greater investment into renewable resources such as solar energy. 
And then there was exploring the universe, space exploration, researching the atmosphere, which just underscored his nickname, Governor Moonbeam. What I saw is the connection is fiscal imbalance with environmental imbalance. In other words, Brown saw a connection between living more simply and taking care of the environment. But on the national scene, that's not what most voters and political observers saw. Is he a conservative? Is he a liberal? Or is he just a political opportunist who senses when political tides are changing and how to ride them? It so happened that the zeitgeist, or maybe I'll call it the ethos, uh, made it very difficult to connect those two ideas. Because the small mind that said, ooh, you, you, know, you don't want to overspend. You're a Republican. Oh, you don't like nuclear power. Well, you're, you're a liberal. You're a Democrat or something. So you put the two together, and that creates a certain uh, cognitive dissonance that I was not able to overcome in the 1980 election. Looking back, it seems obvious now that seeking the presidency again in 1980 was, to say the least, a political miscalculation. Yeah, I mean, oh, big mistake. Big mistake. Jody Evans had a leadership role in Brown's campaign, but was only 25 years old. We were all young. I mean, sometimes I say to Jerry, what were you thinking? Senator Ted Kennedy said he would also challenge Carter, but from the left. And that was pretty much the beginning of the end for the Brown for President campaign. The low point came in Madison, Wisconsin, just days before the state's primary. Brown had lost every primary so far, only cracking 10% of the vote in one state. His campaign planned to make a final stand in Wisconsin. So Brown planned an elaborate event that would project him as the candidate of the future. He enlisted director Francis Ford Coppola to make a high-tech video presentation that would play behind Brown as he spoke on an outdoor stage. But then the sound went out, the video didn't play properly, and the takeaway from the high-tech display became... Even the technologies of this age need some human assistance. Again, here's Jody Evans. Watching that was devastating. As soon as it opens, it's like nothing's working. It opens and astronauts are doing summer salts in Jerry's collar and on his forehead. I mean, it was, I'm laughing. I was crying. I was a puddle of tears because it was clear that that moment was just, we're in the wrong place. And, and we just need to close it down. So we closed it down the next day. and the handful of advisors who did see failure up ahead were ignored. So why did you ignore all their advice? Because I was very ambitious. You know, they had good advice, I didn't listen to it. Looking back, you could say Brown's ambition clouded his political eye. By the way, if I'd listened to it, I might not have had the focus and the ambition to get to be governor at the age of 36. So something that gets you in one place doesn't necessarily get you to the next place. Why did you want to be president so badly? That's, why did you want to do this interview? You, you do things. This is what this is your job. Um, but it wasn't your job to run for president. But had it been better not to run? Yes. No question. If I had not run and prepared a very thoughtful way, a subsequent run for the presidency, I might have made it. But I didn't. So it was back to California for Brown. But he had lost his political eye, and with it, his political strength was draining fast. Democrats in the legislature overrode his vetoes more than a dozen times, an act of rebellion unmatched in California history to this day. 
With a couple years left in his term, he had to contend with the image of being a lame duck governor. Well, I don't know what that means. That's an interesting metaphor. I had seen a duck with a, with a wounded leg or something. So I, it's an interesting image, but I mean, clearly it doesn't show up that way. I mean, do you really think a governor feels like he's a duck? So I mean, what does that mean? Brown may not have been an actual duck, but he was definitely politically wounded, and the punches just kept on coming. In 1981, Brown was blindsided with a controversy he didn't see coming at all, a controversy so mishandled by his administration that it came to haunt him for years, a pest that became a huge headache. There's another national economic story today. It concerns a tiny insect which is threatening the health of California's multi-billion dollar agricultural industry. The infestation of the Mediterranean fruit fly, or medfly, pitted farmers against environmentalists. And Brown was kind of stuck in the middle. And it was threatening, you know, crops, potentially billions of dollars in crop loss. How did you approach that problem? Uh, inadequately. I don't know what the hell, I'd never heard of a Mediterranean fruit fly until Richard Rominger, director of agriculture, told me about it. And I did listen, clearly enough, to pick up on the seriousness of it. And so spraying chemicals, that seemed politically and environmentally questionable. I've got to weigh the, the health effects and the impact on people. When Brown refused to spray, the Reagan administration hit him with a powerful counterpunch, a threat to quarantine all California produce. Now Brown had no choice. A quarantine would cripple a multi-billion dollar industry with economic damages from the fields of the Central Valley to the ports of major cities. It was a political move, but it was a good move. It was a clever move, and I didn't see that, so that was not good. In July of 1981, Brown was forced to begin spraying. Four Malathion spraying helicopters took to the skies over San Jose this morning in the continuing battle, of course, against the Medfly. So I should have been able to anticipate that. So that shows some deficiency in my decision-making process. It seems now that of all the political controversies Brown confronted during his first time as governor, this is the one he'd like to do over. I don't think I looked at it with the level of scrutiny that I generally like to employ. The eye that Brown talks about, Medfly taught him that it has to be trained and constantly exercised. I've learned over the period of decades that stuff can go wrong, and it's not obvious. I would say the Medfile learned a lot from that. So all that's going on, and meanwhile, Brown was on the hunt for another office to run for after eight years as governor. So he limped into a race for the U.S. Senate. Brown's Republican opponent in that 82 Senate race was San Diego Mayor Pete Wilson. And he had a reputation for being a good manager, something Brown did not have, especially after the Medfly fiasco. On top of that, Brown had to deal with a tanking economy. Our economy is temporarily in recession. This means tighter budgets, lower tax revenues, and rising joblessness. Today, we might call that bad atmospherics. And making matters worse for him, Brown's political eye seemed completely out of focus. His Senate campaign was struggling for a winning issue against Wilson when a golden opportunity presented itself. I'm sitting in the campaign headquarters looking at clippings. Brown's political advisor, Tom Quinn, stumbled across an article about Pete Wilson that caught his eye. One of them was a Pete Wilson uh, speech somewhere in Northern California, and he was asked the question about 
Social Security. He said, look, this is going to go bankrupt, and what are you going to do about it? And he said, well, look, obviously we're going to have to make some changes. We're going to have to have some cutbacks uh, here. And I don't remember the exact words, but it was enough for me to think, aha, he wants to cut Social Security. So Quinn got to work cutting a TV ad. It was sort of a middle-aged guy at, at a lunch truck. And uh, off-camera, the announcer says, oh, pardon me, sir. I uh, wonder if I can ask you a question. Oh, Excuse me, sir. Would you mind telling me who you're supporting for U.S. Senator? Not Jerry Brown. Knew that Brown was pretty disliked at that moment. Do you like Wilson's plan to cut some Social Security benefits? Well, I mean, his idea of cutting Social Security. I mean, that, you like that. No, that's not right. That's unfair. Maybe I will take another look at Jerry Brown. Maybe you should take another look at Jerry Brown. So that was the commercial. Well, it started moving after a week. We're saying we were doing like every other day polls. This is having some traction. But Brown didn't see it. He was convinced that the issue of the day would be opposing nuclear power. Tom Quinn couldn't believe it. Jerry, this is working. This is working. This social security, it's working. Brown didn't listen. He pulled the Social Security ad and went with a commercial opposing nuclear power. I want to go on living. Pete Wilson opposes the nuclear arms freeze. Jerry Brown supports it. Vote for your life. Elect Jerry The commercial Brown. flopped. Brown lost the 82 Senate election to Wilson by seven points. For the first time in 14 years, Jerry Brown was out of office. Looking back now, Brown can see that his political discernment, his eye, had failed him. I would say my judgment is not as acute as it is today. The full sharpening of Brown's political eye would take decades. I have had more time to think about things, and I've been in more campaigns. I've read more survey data, and I've seen more issues and ads and campaigns and successes and failures, so my eye is more seasoned. Coming up on The Political Mind of Jerry Brown, it's Brown's return to politics after years in the wilderness. Here I am as a chairman of the, of the Democratic Party. His evolution on the issue of money in politics from the 90s. And money has been the lubricant greasing the deal. To today. It's so hard to raise money from almost all candidates. Any money you can get is great. And if you just can't wait, the next episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. The Political Mind of Jerry Brown is a production of KQED Public Radio. Guy Marzarati produced the show. Queen Kim is our series editor. Katie McMurrin mixed the show. And Susie Racho did the scoring. Our music was composed by Daoud Anthony. KQED's leadership team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Jonathan Blakely, and Julie Kane. Special thanks to Martin Meeker and Todd Holmes at the Oral History Center of the Bancroft Library. I'm Scott Schaefer. Thanks for listening. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Visit www.calhum.org.